Welcome once again to the Irish Mythology Podcast. I'm Stephanie Nihirni. And I'm Marcus O'Hishkin. This week, we're taking a little break from the story of the two a day and having a look at a lesser known figure from Irish mythology. But we'll be back to the two a day to see what happens under Brez's rule in the next episode. So this week, we have a very unusual story about an unusual figure in Irish mythology. And that's a druid called Myrua. And how, according to myth, he beheaded the biblical figure, John the Baptist. Now, we actually posted on our Facebook page for the show that we would be doing this story. And the response was mixed enough. Um, Some people seemed a little bit incredulous at the story existing in the first place. But we can assure you that this myth was actually recorded in the same way that the stories of the fur bullock and the salmon of knowledge and all of the other myths that we've talked about in this show were recorded. So uh, a very big welcome to our new listeners. And yes, a Christian monk in Ireland did in fact write a story about a druid beheading John the Baptist. But it is important to note that we're not saying that a druid literally beheaded John the Baptist. And, you know, we'll never know, but it's probably not true. Like, <laughs> yeah, we're not presenting it as, as gospel. <laughs> yes. But anyway, um, if that isn't weird enough for you, we'll also be talking about another myth regarding Moira uh, and his daughter, Tlacta, travelling to Samaria in the Middle East to study the magic of another biblical figure, Simon Magus, who was the arch enemy of St. Peter and St. Paul. So we'll also be talking about Moira and Tlacta's roles in Irish mythology, the incredible magical powers that they had, and why they aren't as well known as some of the other figures that we've covered on the show. We'll also delve into links that both Simon Magus and John the Baptist have to Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is a catch-all term for religious ideologies that hold that the material world is a false reality, a bit like a simulation. So the groups that believed in this generally placed an emphasis on personal spiritual knowledge and didn't have the same views on the likes of sin and evil that modern Christian churches might have. It relates to alternative forms of Christianity and Judaism uh, that were popular in the early century CE and enjoy renewed interest in modern times on the back of films like The Matrix and the writing of Philip K. Dick. So we're going to be asking, are these stories of Moirua interacting with biblical figures suggestive of some sort of heresy in the early Irish church? Did the church hierarchy in the early medieval period see some commonalities maybe between Gnosticism and native Irish polytheism? So meaning, you know, the worship of multiple gods as opposed to just one. Or were they just attempts by the church to kind of finish off the last remnants of the Druidic religion by associating Myruth with a controversial and reviled figure such as Simon Magus? Yeah, this one, it's, it's very strange altogether. And though Myra is one of the lesser known figures of Irish mythology, we do have a few sources that speak about him. Although, as usual, when researching mythology, you'll find that these sources can be quite contradictory. Yeah, the most famous story relating to him is the Siege of Knock Long, which is written about in the 15th century Book of Lismore. And it's another unusual one because it's the only story that has been uncovered to date where Cormac MacArt is the villain, really. Now, you might have heard of Cormac. He is the High King of Ireland in the stories of the Fenian cycle. They're the stories about Fionn McCool and the Fianna. 
and he's portrayed there as a very wise, benevolent and even heroic leader. So Cormac McGart or Cormac Ulfada, as Cormac of the Longbeard as he's also known was said, to have been the most famous of the high kings in Ireland and he was generally known for his wisdom and for writing a lot of Breton law and so on but not in the Siege of Knock Long. So if you listen to our last episode, you might remember us talking about how the majority of our surviving mythology was written down by scribes from Leinster, Meath and Ulster, and the dominant powers of medieval Ireland. And, and like history, myth is written by the victors. So stories where the hero's allegiance was with Munster are actually in pretty short supply in Irish mythology. So in the tale of Knock Long, Cormac McCart and his allies attack Munster in the southern part of Ireland to claim tribute in the form of taxes. But Moira, a powerful druid and sorcerer, a powerful druid sorcerer from Munster, uses magic to foil the High King's plans. So that's a heads up. Heads up. <laughs> uh, it's a heads up that when this druid Moira is around, a lot of the usual assumptions in mythology get turned on their head. And that's a very Gnostic thing in and of itself, but we'll get to that in a, in a bit. Um, first, I just want to mention that there'll be lots of additional info about this episode on our Patreon page. For as little as three euro per month, you can access the story only audio, story scripts, links to art and maps related to the story. And we'll have a bit of video from uh, Valencia Island in County Kerry where Moirua lives in the stories. Yeah. Valencia and Kerry in general is beautiful if you're lucky enough to get the weather and it just occurred to me as you said that there's a bit of video from Valencia Island that you took a couple of years ago and I just hope I'm not swearing in that video. No no I, I actually vetted it first. <laughs> me driving along yeah. I mean I never swear while driving anyway um yeah so hopefully we'll get out to places connected with Irish mythology again soon all going well with the coronavirus and the lifting of restrictions but anyway, back to the story. The main primary sources for this are two relatively short poems. The Beheading of John the Baptist by Moirua and The Executioner of John the Baptist. And there's not much about Moirua himself in the poems. So we've drawn from a range of sources to flesh out the characters. And as, as usual, we've added our own magic to the story. Before we get to that, though, I just wanted to mention the name Moirua means servant of the wheel. So, I mean, we think the pronunciation is Moirua. Uh, Mo is an Irish word, an old Irish word, really, for slave or bondman. So that's someone who's engaged in some kind of servitude without pay. And then Rua gives us the word um, ra or ra, depending on where you are in Ireland, um, which is the modern Irish word for wheel. So most people in Ireland, or most people, I suppose, who did their schooling in Ireland will know that the word rahar means bike. So... Unless you're from Connemara, and then you'd probably say, my bicycle. But anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, they do. You hear that in Connemara, they say, my bicycle. Um, but to get back to the actual story, though, uh, we'll go through which bits come from where afterwards. But for now, we present the druid that killed John the Baptist. Have you heard about the druid, Myrua, and his most famous deed? I thought not. It's not the sort of tale you would hear from a teacher or a priest. Myrua lived on Valencia Island, off the coast of Kerry, in a modest home. Yet among chieftains and people of skill, he was renowned for great power in sorcery. 
he was feared and respected in equal measure, and he had a daughter, Tlacta, whose reputation as a magician was grown to match his. Faro Faro, in the time of Christ and his apostles, when powerful Rome, still pagan, stood strong, something happened that would ensure the name Myrua would be forever known, even if only by a select few. On a stormy night, Ma Rua sits alone overlooking the sea. He spies a ship in trouble amidst the violent waves, closes his eyes and chants a spell to draw the ship to his position. The wind changes direction, altering the ship's course. It speeds through sheets of rain towards the rugged shore. The ship's hull shatters upon the rocks. Its crew, men of Egyptian origin, scramble from the sea, disoriented and lost. And on the shore they see a man wearing the hide of a cow and the face of a bird holding a stone in the shape of an eel. The man turns and walks inland. Enchanted, the sailors follow. They walk behind him into a cave which becomes a tunnel, and the tunnel leads to a flight of spiral stairs. At the top of the stairs is a ceiling of rock, but it is no obstacle to the druid. He reaches out with his hand and his mind, and the rock simply slides away. Where the rock used to be is a space revealing his modest home where a meal has already been served, though no one else appears to be there. The sorcerer gestures at the crew to sit. Cramped around a small table, the sailors eat, and they regale Maurua with stories from the east. They tell him of new religions and ancient myths, of great prophets and sorcerers. The greatest of all of these, or so they say, is a Samaritan named Simon, whose works of magic won him fame and the adoration of his country folk. But it also made him many enemies who feared his power. This Simon, so the sailors claim, can make idols cast in stone and metal come alive and walk among humans. He can control snakes with his mind. Nothing I can't do, thinks the druid. But when they tell him that Simon can levitate and fly through the air, his interest is aroused. He asks the sailors to take him overseas to meet this famed magician, for he would meet this Simon and he would learn this skill of flight. Well, we would, replies the captain of the crew, if we had a ship to take you. Fear not, the druid replies with a brush of his hand, dismissing their concern. In the morning, you shall have one. But now it is time to sleep. Marua, in his youth, travelled all of Ireland and learned from its greatest poets. 
And with this skill, he recites poems of his own composition that lulled men to sleep. When they awake, Myrua is waiting, and the great flagstone that covered the stairs has been moved aside. The men follow him back the way they came, down the spiral stairs, through the tunnel, and out of the mouth of the cave. When they emerge at the seashore, the storm has passed. The sea is calm, and the sun is splitting the stones. The men gasp in shock when they see that their ship, restored to all its former glory, is afloat in the bay. And at the shore, appearing as though from a reflection in the water, is a beautiful red-haired woman with five rowing boats to take them out. Ah, my daughter, my greatest apprentice, Tlakta, announces Myrua. The crew row their boats out to their ship and no sooner are they aboard, the sorcerer asks Tlakta to summon a wind so that they may set sail without delay. The sails are unfurled and they sail south, past the Bay of Biscay, around the Iberian Peninsula, through the Straits of Gibraltar and through the Mediterranean Sea, until finally they arrive in Galilee. Galilee is ruled by a famous king called Herod. When Herod hears of the maid from the west, he sends a messenger to request his presence at the royal court. For Herod has a great interest in magic and spirituality. The druid accepts the invitation and with his apprentice sets out by foot, a journey that takes them several days in heat they are unaccustomed to. When they arrive at Herod's palace, the welcome is not what they expected after such an arduous journey. In fact, no one pays them much attention at all. Tlakta, putting her hand on her father's shoulder, whispers in his ear, their hospitality leaves a lot to be desired. We are surrounded by gold and silk, yet no one has offered us so much as a drink. Perhaps we should leave. But Moirua, sensing distraction amongst Herod's courtiers, says, no, I think there is opportunity amidst this chaos. In Herod's throne room, the king is sitting head in hand, and when he looks ahead at the opening doors, the arriving party from Ireland see a worrisome expression on his face. What ails you, great king? May I cure your malaise, Maru calls out as they enter. Great sorcerer, replies the king. A terrible predicament has befallen me. When my brother Philip died, I divorced his wife and took his, and among my people this is taboo. Though because of my great power, not one would challenge me, except he, the man who says he is here to bear witness to the light. His name is John. How I love to hear him preach. Myrua nods as he listens and then replies, can this John remove your power? Can he cause you any difficulty? No, responds Herod. But that is not where the problem lies. 
My wife dislikes him quite a lot because of how he speaks of us, but I would never harm a prophet on her behalf. However, for my stepdaughter, who I adore, who I promised anything she could ask for, I, I'm sure her mother's influence is at play, but I'm on my oath, you see, she asked for John's head on a silver plate. Say no more, says my ruler. Take me to John. I will make this trouble disappear. And all I ask of you is that you give me your finest chariot and the animals to pull it. With a heavy heart, Herod agrees, and leaving Tlachta at the court, Myrua goes with one of the palace guards to the jail where John is being held. When John sees him, he kneels and says, You may take my head, sorcerer. I have done all I came to do. I have borne witness to the light and that light is in the world and my people who have seen it will carry the light for a thousand generations. Fine words, says Myru. Your people are blessed to have had you. The guard who accompanied him to the cell pushes in a stone block. John rests his head upon it. You, though, great druid, though you may live for centuries yet, you condemn your race today. On a day named for me, a weapon of your creation will block out the sun as it falls upon their heads and only one third will survive. Marua takes an axe from the guard. Such is the fate of all races, Holy One. All are condemned. But it is good mine will have a second opportunity on this earth. Marua raises the axe above his head and swings down, taking the head of John the Baptist. Having procured the silver platter from the kitchen staff at the palace and fulfilled his obligation to Herod, Moirua takes his new chariot and he and Tlachta set out for Samaria to meet Simon Magus, the magician sorcerer. The two spend years learning from Simon. They learn his power of flight. When they have mastered every magical art the Samaritan can teach, together the three construct a marvellous machine. A wheel with oars that can fly through the air, that can accommodate 1,000 passengers, so big it can block out the sun. And if you see it, you will go blind. And if you hear it, you will go deaf. And if you touch it, you will die. When they return to Ireland, Tlachta gives birth to three sons. Three, sons of three fathers. Three sons of the three sons of Simon Magus. Where do you start with that? I don't know where to start, really. Um, I was kind of unimpressed with their arrival at the palace. They've journeyed for days on foot through the desert. And then they're not even given, you know, offered as, as much as a, as a cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> like they were in England. Yeah. <laughs> where you'd expect that. <laughs> Carry on. Uh, but anyway, yeah, the story, it's pretty much out there on its own, really, in terms of... Irish mytholo mythological figures in 
New Testament settings. According to the biblical depiction of John the Baptist in the Gospels, he appears as a preacher who is sort of a forerunner to Jesus and he becomes this really major religious figure and he subsequently said to have been beheaded on the orders of a local ruler before Jesus was crucified. Uh, but nobody is, is really sure where the head is said to have ended up. So you have some crossover here with the Old Testament in the pseudo-histories. Uh, these are medieval manuscripts that mix history and myth to create a history of Ireland that we may have touched on before in, in this show. But having this druid from Munster, not only being in Galilee and Samaria at the time of, of Jesus Christ, but actually executing John the Baptist, it, it raises, I would say, a lot of questions. It does. We are, we are I just had a thought there that we are kind of mad for... Um headless saints here we do have St Oliver Plunkett we do have St Oliver Plunkett um, his head resides in a very ornate box in uh, St Peter's Church in Drogheda we've talked a lot about context before and how that might help us decipher these tales but as usual there'll be no definitive answers but there are clues yeah, so the poem, The Beheading of John the Baptist by Myra, comes from the uh, Lara Emania. Um, that's the book of Emania, which was compiled in the 14th century. But the text within that attributes it to Flanfina Macasa Ard Macara Angre Gilgar. Uh, if I've said that correctly. <laughs> that was fantastic. Thanks. Um, so we, uh, now we have Tiernaki Breen. Um, an 11th century Irish abbot and scribe had previously equated this flan with someone called Alfred Macos, who was a 7th century Saxon ruler of Northumbria in the north of modern day England. But interestingly, Alfred had spent some time living in Ireland in his youth. If this is correct, then we're talking about a time when there are still people alive who knew St. Columba, aka Column Kill. And he would have known people who would have been alive in the time of the fabled St. Patrick. So we're looking at the very end of the era during which Ireland was Christianised here. Yeah, so at the very least, you would have had the story that was passed down from one generation of clergy to the next. But it's also possible that although the writings of Patrick claimed that the entire country was converted to Christianity within his lifetime, it's also possible that that was a much slower process than that. So we mentioned before that Ireland wasn't a single political unit in the early medieval period or before that. So it's it's not at all much of a leap to the idea that actually maybe not all of the chiefdoms were converted straight away. And we do know that at least one part of Patrick's account of the Christianisation of Ireland is inaccurate. We talked about Patrick in our, in our first episode and we mentioned that contrary to his own writings, there were already some Christian communities in Ireland when he arrived. Yeah, so the first recorded bishop of the Christians in Ireland was a man named Palladius who was from Armorica in Gaul, which is modern day Brittany and the Loire Valley in France. And according to the Chronicle of the Prosper of Aquitaine, in 431, 431 even, uh, CE, Palladius, having been ordained by Pope Celestine, is sent as first bishop to the Scotty, believing in Christ. And Scotty was like an old name for the Irish and the etymological root of Scotland. 
Yeah, so we don't know an awful lot about Palladius's time in Ireland, but it wasn't a long time and it doesn't he doesn't seem to have done a lot of converting. But we do know that around the time of his mission in Ireland, British Christians were divided by controversy, a heresy known as Pelagianism, which, wait for it, denied the necessity of infant baptism. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Sorry, add that sound effect in after. <laughs> if the beheading of John the Baptist by Moira really does have its origins in the 7th century, then we could be seeing a literary allegory cryptically alluding to the early Irish, Irish church's struggles with both the native Druidic religion and this Pelagian heresy. Is Moira's execution of John the Baptist related to the Pelagian views on baptism? So the early church beyond Ireland was consumed with these controversies regarding heresy. And one such aberration in the eyes of the Orthodox church elders was Simonianism, uh, which traced its origins to Simon Magus, who we mentioned earlier was a rival to St. Peter and St. Paul and was claimed by some of his followers actually to be the real Messiah. So the Simonians were a a Gnostic sect and are generally believed to have disappeared by the end of the 4th century. But there is sort of an outside chance that there were some remnants still around in the 5th century. And who knows, maybe even some of them made it to Ireland. Um, Simonianism is recorded as having followers in Syria, uh, Asia Minor, uh, which is Turkey, and, and Rome. And we know that there was contact between Ireland and the Mediterranean going back at least as far as the 2nd century. And although um, Simon's followers claimed he was the Messiah, um, according he to... He was just a very naughty boy. Yes. <laughs> sorry, did I steal your it, it was so obvious. Oh, it was. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry, do you want to... No, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, anyway, we have um, Ptolemy's map of Ireland from the second century, and he was based in Alexandria in Egypt. So probably got a lot of information and coordinates in it from sailors who had been to Ireland, um, which was the inspiration actually for the Egyptian sailors in our story. And there's a lot of information about tribes and settlements in that map. It's so comprehensive that someone from that part of the world must have spent a considerable amount of time in Ireland. Now, there have also been Roman artefacts uncovered in North County Dublin, um, in County Tyrone, and Roman coins were found during excavations at Newgrange, suggesting it was a pilgrimage site of sorts, or maybe even a tourist attraction in the early centuries CE. And the Roman historian Tacitus writes that Agricola, who was the Roman governor of Britain between 78 CE and 84 CE, entertained an exiled Irish chieftain who raised an army over there and returned to to take back his lands. The pseudo-historical Book of Invasions names the semi-mythological Tuil Tectmer as the chieftain in question. And of course, we have the fact that the Roman church had its presence in Ireland prior to the arrival of Patrick. Yeah, so look, it's probably a wild stretch to claim that there were Simonians in Ireland in the 5th century, but it's, it's not completely impossible, though... If there were heretical goings on, it was most likely connected to Pelagianism. Um, the biggest clue is the text of the beheading of John the Baptist by Maru. So the baptism reference 
might seem unnecessarily cryptic, uh, but that is sort of consistent with the style of um, early Irish poetry. So there is a technique also popular in the skaldic Scandinavian poetry of the time called kenning. And this was basically the use of riddles rather than saying, you know, what you actually meant in a poem. So it was possibly less common in Irish than it is in kind of the, the Scandinavian poetry. Um, but in our, in older Irish, we do have something called Breher or Oem, which were two word kennings explaining the meaning of Oem symbols. Interestingly, when I was reading about kennings, um, a good way to talk about, or to I suppose to describe it for people who still aren't clear, the one example given was in the song The Sun and the Rain by Madness. You know where Sog sings yeah, yeah, about yeah. standing up in the falling down. Yeah. And falling down means the rain. So yeah. that sort of thing where yeah. you use kind of... Do you know, I've heard cryptic. that song millions of times, so I've never, uh, I've never actually caught that. There you go. Yeah, well, learn something new every day. Someone's well overdue to do an, an analysis of uh, Sog's lyrics yeah. <laughs> and their, how they've been influenced by Skaldic Scandinavian poetry. Um... But yeah, so the references to executing a Baptist here within this text could mean trying to do away with baptism, possibly. And Marua, due to his association with Simon Magus, might simply just be a symbol of heresy in general. But that still leaves the question, why the association with Simon Magus? Well, the quick answer is that they were both magicians or sorcerers. As we've mentioned before, the Irish for druid is dri which means also means um, magician, sorcerer and mage. Um, Simon's name was Simon Magus, literally Simon the Magician or Simon the Druid, as he was actually called in some Irish texts, which I actually don't know the primary source for that. I will just put my hand up and say um, I got it from a book called, oh, I think it's called... Um, Celtic, something to do with Celtic Britain. Obviously, this is that narrows. It yeah, I, I know, I know, I know. So you, hello, dear listeners, go onto Amazon yeah. and type in Celtic Britain, and you'll find exactly. It's, a, the, it's actually on Google Books, so you can get the whole oh PDF. But I can't remember the name. We'll I'll put it in the show notes. Thanks. Yeah, and as sorry, and as we've mentioned earlier, Simon was a rival to the apostles, and to his later followers was a rival to Jesus as Messiah. Despite the fact that he was portrayed as the epitome of heresy by the Catholic Church, there's only actually one mention of him in the New Testament, and that's in the Acts of the Apostles. Yeah, that's in Acts chapter 9. And I'm going to read this bit out here, although it's long, so do bear with us. Um, So that reads, But there was a certain man called Simon. Was there a song? Hang on, sorry, I'll come back to this. Was there a song that they used to teach about Simon in primary school? Simon Says? No, No. Biblical Simon. Was there a primary school song? Oh, I think that was a different Simon though, wasn't it? Was there something about someone being a greedy man? That's Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. Yeah, who I was actually in a school play and I played one of the tenants that that Zacchaeus was trying to extract rent from. Yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. To check your IMDb profile. <laughs> yeah, I, I, th- I think my line was, "We cannot pay this. We have wor- I've worked myself to the bone." Wow. Yeah. That's not today nor yesterday. No, I was, I was seven, I think, at the time, so maybe eight. <coughs> God. Anyway. So, so it's at least ten years ago. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to this. Um, 
So Acts chapter 9. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptised, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto him Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them. Only they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power and that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said to him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, and that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. And from that one passage comes the sin of simony, which uh, is paying for position or influence in the church. And it's obviously named for Simon Magus there. The things that Simon was reviled for, simony, Gnostic heresy and sorcery, are important here because it allows us to ask why Myra was linked to him. And sorcery is the obvious one. And part of this may also derive from the fact that the word Druid was sometimes translated into Latin as Magus. So this could have been influential. And although Myrua is not well as well known now as he was in medieval Ireland, the surviving stories that we have relating to him tell of a very powerful Druid who was skilled in sorcery, poetry and legal matters. He's at the pinnacle of every field that was important to the pagan Irish. And in terms of the Druids that we know by name from mythology, he is really only rivaled by Merlin and Talesian from the Welsh tradition and another Irish mythological figure, Aragon Clungel. So he's so powerful that there is a case to be made that the stories of Myru are actually the repurposed remnants of the stories of Agod, and one that was particularly important in Munster. This great power that Myru possessed is probably best attested in the saga The Siege of Knocklong that we mentioned earlier. In that story, the forces of the High King of Ireland, Cormac MacArt, have besieged the forces of Munster. Cormac has employed sorcerers from the other world, so basically fairy sorcerers or demigods to ensure that the battle goes his way. Now, these sorcerers change the landscape by raising the hills that Cormac's forces are camped on so that they have the high ground and they make rivers and streams around the Munster camp go dry so that the warriors of the Munster chief, Fieke, have nothing to drink and are overcome with thirst, which 
would put you in mind of Oak McGurk at the end of our last story. Thirst in Irish mythology, whether, you know, just been been dying for a glass of water or a cup of tea or whatever, it seems to be this like recurring thing that happens over again. Anyway. Pa- parched for a pint. Parched oh, it's for not a so pint. much in mythology, but you're still here. Just real life, yeah. living this apocalypse. <laughs> dying for a pint of plane. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, eventually the Munster chief sends for Moirua who agrees to assist but for a price and the price is 100 cows with shining white hides 100 oxen 100 race horses 50 cloaks of crisscross weave and a wife and the area of land that is known today as Fermoy in County Cork <clears throat> that's some fee wouldn't say no to it myself uh, but it turns out to be well worth it for the Munster chief because Moirua really turns the tide of the battle when he arrives with his student Kian Moore so he sticks his spear in the ground and a stream appears he raises the ground that the Munster forces are camped on he turns himself into a giant and turns enemy sorcerers to stone and something just occurred to me there when when you were um, when you were speaking that lad um, Kian Moore does, does that mean big head? I would have interpreted it yeah. as big head, um, <clears throat> but I wonder, is it related to Con or, I don't know. I mean, I'd have to look into it. Kian Moore. Yeah, it does sound like it though, doesn't it? It is the kind of... I was going to say, it sounds like the kind of jokey Irish, you know, yeah, yeah. nickname you'd hear. Oh yeah, your man, big yeah. head. Works, yeah, Kian Moore over there. Yeah, you know him. Drinks <laughs> and Clarks. <laughs> Um, so it's interesting to note that one of the things Cormac, Cormac even offered Myru, along with land in Ulster, was a place at his side at a drinking session at Tara. <laughs> it's like the lore of a good session must have been as strong then as it is now. <laughs> and in fairness to Myru, he, he turned it down and you'd imagine uh, they were serious sessions. Something like being invited to a party with Sean Ryder in the early 90s. <laughs> I feel like you need to update your cultural record. <laughs> Well, you know, <coughs> some sessions like my room have been around for a while. <laughs> some kind of Keith Moon type character driving a Rolls Royce off off the hill of Tara. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I don't know if I'd be able for that at all. Uh, but you know, maybe that's what my was thinking. He listened to his liver. Uh, said no. <laughs> uh, anyway, moving on to Tlakta. Uh, she was certainly, uh, she was most certainly a goddess at one stage. So she's associated with. Uh, the Hill of Ward near Athboy in County Meath and that place used to bear her name. It was one of the major ceremonial sites in Ireland where the Druids would celebrate Samhain. Uh, that's Halloween for those of you who aren't familiar with the Irish word. And it's not pronounced Samhain as it was in that show that got cancelled on Netflix recently, Sabrina, the remake. All right, but and also in the <coughs> film um, Halloween, the original, it was pronounced Samhain in that because he, he was writing it on the walls in Blood. My God. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, anyway, nowadays a Samhain festival takes place there every year. And there were a number of important ceremonial sites in ancient Ireland where different seasonal festivals were celebrated. And they are all named for pagan goddesses. And while the etymology of the modern names of Tara, Ujnach, Talchu and Aunmacha can be traced back to those deities. Tlacta's name has been erased from the landscape. So there's something <clears throat> even more sinister about how she was treated in medieval Ireland. In the Wren and Edinburgh Dinshankus, 
we and we mentioned the Dinshenkas before. Their stories about how geographical features were named or how they were created. In those versions of the story, her sexual encounter with the sons of Simon Magus appear not to be consensual and it is very much presented as punishment for her part in the creation of this big wheel thing. Um, in the metrical Dinshankas, however, this is absolutely not the case. In that version, the sex is consensual and the creation of the wheel is not portrayed as being in any way a bad thing. So, I mean, I, I was thinking actually maybe at some stage we might come back to her story or even do like a special Patreon episode on her tale because she's pretty interesting in her own right. So it's important to note that the metrical Dinshankis version is the earlier one. The metrical Dinshankis were poems that had been passed down orally before they were written down uh, in the early medieval period, while the Edinburgh and Wren Dinshankis manuscripts are prose and were based on the older poetic versions. So that means at some stage, somebody disliked Tlacta so much that they sat down and they changed their story from something kind of miraculous to something savage and sinister. Yeah, I'd love to know what she could have done to draw the ire of the writers of these prose versions. Um, Because it it very much seems to be that her power and the audacity of being a woman who practices practices sorcery seems to be the reason. So what we have here is really a literal witch hunt. And this is not the first time we've seen this on this podcast. If you listened to episode two about the goddess Bone and the creation of the Boyne River, you'll remember something that could be construed as punishment for a woman who defies men and practices magic. So in the tale from the Dinchenkos, Bone defies her husband and goes to learn the secrets of a magical well. And when she accesses the power of the well, she ends up being swept away by its waters and dismembered across the sea. And that's open to interpretation. And we chose to interpret Bowen's tale as a divine act of feminine creation, as the result of her defiance is the creation of the River Boyne and the Boyne Valley and essentially the physical world. But it could be seen as punishment. Similarly, um, Shinnan drowns while chasing magical bubbles, um, the magical bubbles of Connell as well, uh, giving her name to the River Shannon. Yet the names of Bone and Shannon are still preserved in the topography of Ireland. The River Boyne runs from Carberry in County Kildare through Meath and parts of Louth to the sea, and the River Shannon, Ireland's longest river, um, rises in County Cavan and flows all the way down to um, Limerick. So what was so bad about Thlacta's transgression that completely wiped her off the map? Um, it, it could be the nature of the wheel itself that she helps to create. So this is the wheel with oars that was mentioned earlier in the poetic version of the story, which takes a much more positive view of her and the wheel. Uh, she co-creates this with Magrua and Simon Magus. But in the prose, prose versions, she does it all by herself and she's punished for it. The thing is, though, we don't actually know what the nature of this object was. Its name, on uh, Rauch, is usually translated as like the rowing wheel or the oared wheel and interpreted as some kind of ship. Sometimes it's, it's interpreted as one that flies. Now, according to the 9th century antiquarian Eugene O'Curry, uh, St. Columba, who we mentioned earlier, is said to have prophesied that the wheel would crush the followers of Simon Magus on St. John's Day. Now, St. John's Day falls on the 24th of June and may have replaced the summer solstice as a celebration in the transition of from the native pagan religion 
to Christianity. But this celebration takes a typically Irish pagan form. Uh, it involves bonfires the night before. And these celebrations, though they're not as widespread as they used to be, they still take place in parts of the west of Ireland. But what's even more intriguing, and I did not realise this until we started doing this episode, but the St. John in question is actually John the Baptist. Now, there are other interpretations of what on Ruch Roach, uh, was and what the name means. In an article from the journal Proceedings of the Harvard Celtic Colloquium, issue 14, I think it was like 1993 or thereabouts, uh, there's an article called Giant Women and Flying Machines by Catherine Chadburn. And she talks about an object of divination used by Aborigines in Australia called a bull roarer. So she links this to the wrong wheel by pointing out that the bull roarer is sometimes known as the oar, and the object itself is described as a lathe of wood attached to a string that was spun around on a circle and it would make a roaring noise like thunder. So it's interesting to note that women were forbidden from touching it, but... Oh, of course. <laughs> of <Sorry>. course. <laughs> but there is also a myth that says the bull roarer was originally used by a woman until it was stolen by a man for his exclusive use. A tale as old as time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it would be a massive stretch to claim in any way that there were any physical links between early medieval Ireland and Australia. But what could be at play here is a really, really old myth. So the point here is, is that sometimes very old myths and practices can survive from before humans branched out and travelled elsewhere, you know, across across the world. So it could be the case that an object similar to the Aboriginal no bull roarer and Tlachta and Magro's oared wheel uh, was used prior to humans leaving Africa maybe and survived in myth and the practice of divination has certainly survived and you might have noticed that methods such as tarot and astrology have been making a comeback lately. And you also have the I Ching in the Chinese tradition, and that's a book with short passages. And basically you cast lots using either coins or different sized straws to come up with different combinations of passages that you can use for the purpose of purposes of divination. Um, you might have actually seen it used fairly prominently in the TV series The Man in the High Castle, which is based on a book by the same name by Philip K. Dick, who we mentioned earlier as someone connected with the recent Gnostic Renaissance, which brings us neatly back to the Gnostic connection to our story. So the Gnostics weren't one homogenous group. It was more of a catch-all term for a group of religious sects who believed that we were all part of the all, uh, which was sometimes referred to as the pleroma. Um, sounds like something to make you sick. Like... <laughs> I come to work today of a terrible dose of the pleroma but anyway the, the pleroma yeah so they they thought that we had become disconnected from our spiritual home and lived in a false reality created by a demiurge or a false god and according to their theology each being contained part of the pleroma within them uh, that's the divine spark for which the christian gnostics was a kind of Christ type consciousness that if cultivated would lead us all back to the, the all and the true God. The extent of this and the nature of reality for them varied really from group to group. So at its most extreme end, you had the Sethians. I don't know if that's Sethians. Right. Sethians. 
uh, who saw the material world and thus its creator, the God of the Old Testament, as being evil. And then other groups such as the Valentinians, 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 Valentinians saw the creator God as more of a misguided being full of hubris. And there were also medieval revivals of Gnosticism. So the most famous example of this is probably the Cathars, who were based in the south of France and were wiped out um, by armies loyal to the Catholic Church in the 14th century. Actually, I got my dad a book on the Cathars for Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if he finished it yet. Oh, we'll have to... So, sweet. This will be a test now of whether he actually listens to the <laughs> podcast or not. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, yeah, back to this... Um, on Gnosticism, I actually think a lot of the tragically now cancelled TV show, The OA, on Netflix incorporated a lot of Gnostic myths. So I don't want to spoil that show for anyone who might not have watched it yet. There's only two seasons and it was very, very good. Uh, but if you want to talk to me about that and Gnosticism on Twitter or Instagram, give me a shout. Uh, yeah, that was a fantastic show. I really loved it myself. And they, um, <coughs> something... I guess when I, I thought of when I was kind of researching this and didn't put in the notes, um, it's just that, you know, when you think about that conception of a false reality and that, it sounds kind of mad until you actually think about some stuff that theoretical physics comes up with. And only today I was reading an article which said that the universe actually should not exist because they found that, um, oh God, you actually, I wish I was a physicist today so I can remember the exact term, but it was that, oh yeah, matter and antimatter should have, um, should be magnetically opposite, but they found that it's actually not. So a lot of what theoretical physics was based on can't come up with the reason why um, the universe should exist. Dun, dun, dun. <coughs> anyway, so tune in next time for the theoretical physics podcast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so a lot of um, new Gnostic churches have sprung up over the last century, but there is only one Gnostic group that can trace its origins back to the first century CE, and co coincidentally, they have a very strong link to John the Baptist. The Mandaeans are mainly based around Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Jordan. But they are a religion and an ethnic group, and they are Gnostic, but not Christian. In fact, they see John the Baptist as their main prophet, but they are unique in that they see Jesus as a false prophet. Now, this is very controversial because with other religions, regardless of where they stand on the whole Son of God thing, Jesus is usually seen as a prophet and an all-around good guy, but in the Mandaean texts, he plays a very similar role to that of Simon Magus in Christianity. Yeah, so despite that, any link between John the Baptist and Gnostic themes, as far as our story goes, is probably coincidental. But Mandaeans have remained isolated for the past two millennia. Uh, they don't solicit converts. And up until recently, um, you'd rarely see them venture beyond sort of the Middle East, but there are smaller populations of their diaspora around Europe and the US now. Um, but to come back to the original, the actual story <laughs> that this podcast is meant to be about, um, the author of the original poem most likely cast John the Baptist in his traditional Christian role of baptizer and precursor to Jesus, which is very much the way he is uh, celebrated in contemporary Ireland where he seems to have actually been very, very popular in the past. So there are holy wells dedicated to John the Baptist 
all over Ireland, including one near Glenville in County Cork. And that site is believed locally to have previously served as a place of uh, Druidic worship. So there's also an interesting link between Glenville and Moira. In the siege of Knocklong, we mentioned that one of the things Moira requests as payment was land for himself and his family. And he was given land around Fermoy in County Cork, which is actually just 16 kilometres from Glenville. Yeah, and I was looking at the Ducas website the other day and I saw another indication of uh, John the Baptist's popularity in Ireland. Um, it was on a list of nicknames for from a school in Oldcastle County Meath. And uh, one of them, there was there's all the, these different nicknames that people are known by, but one of them said that when one of the kids was John, he was known as the Baptist, <laughs> which I found <laughs> very entertaining. It's class. But anyway, while, while we're on the subject of Dukas.ie, I was looking up stuff on Valencia, where Moira was said to be from. And I came across this piece, which isn't actually connected to him, but it is where I got the idea for the stone slab and stairs in the story. A man owned a field in Valencia and there was a large flagstone in the centre. There was a great talk among the neighbours about this flag. One Sunday in summer, a crowd of men gathered. They raised the stone and removed it, but there was still another one which was also taken much trouble. Then they found there was a stairs, along which was also made a flag. One of the men continued down along the stairs, where he saw the sign of fire and black soot. He at last turned back, owing to the suffocation, but they at last discovered it was leading along to the sea. Some people say it was a hiding place for monks in the time of the penal laws. More people say it was used for smugglers, for smuggling goods to and from the sea. Interesting. Uh, we went to Valencia a couple of years ago, as we were saying. It's a very beautiful place, and it's very it's very rugged and dominated by the sea. So you know, it's it's actually very small. It's about I think it's, it's a seven miles. Oh yeah, yeah, we drove seven around miles in by three. So you'd, yeah, you'd time, zip yeah. around in no time at all. Um, and there's a bridge across to it from Port McGee and the mainland. Yeah, a lot of tropical looking plants yeah. as well around the place. Um, yeah, it's got the the um, what you call it, the Gulf Stream comes up and. I think it's actually the most temperate. Yes, it yeah. is. Yeah, definitely. Um, and also, uh, there is some kind of plaque or commemorative thing there for because it was the site of the first telegraph link between Ireland and the US, uh, established in 1886, I believe. Mm. It's also relatively close to the Skelligs, um, which are a group of rocky islands off the coast of Kerry, one of which, uh, Skellig Michael, is home to one of Ireland's oldest Christian monasteries. And it's, it's now deserted, but it is a very popular tourist attraction and it has become more popular in recent years because if you don't know what it looks like from anywhere else, you might recognise it as the planet Octo. Is that? Octo, yeah. Octo. Um, it's site of the first Jedi temple in the recent Star Wars sequel trilogy. Yeah. And um, presumably after the Battle of Knocklong, Moira um, moved to his new lands in County Cork. But he had a long association with Valencia and Kerry and is also said to have lived an unusually long life. So I think we heard in one of the excerpts earlier, he lived in the time of 19 kings. So he lived, there was 19 kings ruling um, while he was alive. And some manuscripts have him living 2,000 years before the birth of Christ 
and he's also alive and well in biblical times as we see in our story today and then he plays a huge part in that story the siege of Knocklong, which is set around 250 years later but that's the last we we've heard of him so we'd assume that shortly after his long life came to an end or did it because in november 2018 this happened there's nothing showing on either primary or secondary. Okay, it was moving so fast, in fact, you can no longer see it, but yes, uh, Alongside you. Get to uh, come up on our left hand side and then rapidly veer to the north. Uh, we saw bright light and then it just disappeared at a very high speed. And um, we were just wondering, we didn't think it was a likely collision course, we were just wondering what that could have been. Uh, the Virgin 76 uh, also saw that in our uh, 11 o'clock position, uh, two bright lights. Say again? Uh, Virgin 76, I saw uh, two bright lights at 11 o'clock seem to um, back over to the right and then uh, climb away at, uh, at speed, at least from our perspective. Okay, we're passing that on there, thank you. Meteor or another object making some kind of re-entry. There to be multiple objects following the same sort of trajectory, uh, very bright from where we were. Okay, that's copied. Glad it wasn't just me. No, uh, yeah, very interesting, that one. Speedbird 94, Shannon. 94, go ahead. Okay, just so you know that uh, other aircraft in the air have also reported the same thing, so we're going to have a look and see. The speed is up to normal, it's like Mark 2 or something. Roger, okay, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Sorry, I can't believe you've included this. Um, you know, it's just in the right place, you know. I mean, I think most people would conclude that whatever the pilot saw was either meteorites or maybe it'll push some sort of alien craft out there. But uh, yeah, I suppose <laughs> maybe it was Moirua and Tlaxa back in not one but two of their famous circular flying machines. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, it actually, you know, that actually occurred around the time we started talking about doing this podcast. And then we were in Kerry the month after. So, you know, when we went to Valencia, I'm telling you, it's a pity they didn't stick around long enough to tell us uh, if Moira really was the executioner of John the Baptist. <laughs> you know, yeah, they could have set up a, a school to teach us on how to practice the druidic, art, druidic arts, you know. <laughs> Could have had it on Skellig Mikkel. I can picture myself now as a kind of Mogrua, Mogrua 2020 character, you know, Druid, uh, Druid Hitman for hire. <laughs> like, what do you the do class. for a living? Yeah. I'm a Druid Hitman. <laughs> me and Sean Reno. Yeah. They, get me, they, they get me for my. <laughs> this is Butch Lacta. <laughs> but anyway, that's all we have time for today. Thank God. <laughs> and my um, If you've been enjoying the show so far, you might consider becoming a patron. The Irish Mythology podcast has always been free to listen to on the usual podcast platforms, but it, it's not free to make. So your financial support help us keep making it and invest in things like additional recording equipment, recording at locations associated with the sagas, 
and paying actors and crew to make full cast productions of the sagas you love and in the more immediate term help us buy books for the research <laughs> that we need to do well um, actually patrons have already um, paid for the renewal of our domain name Oh, Which thank you. Sorry. Thank you to all our patrons. So there are a range of benefits at different price tiers. And for just three euro, uh, you can get early access to each episode, longer cuts of each episode, story scripts for every episode, links to art and maps. So you can place yourself in the middle of the action and loads of other stuff. So go and have a look at patreon.com forward slash Irish mythology podcast. And you can find us on Twitter at Irish mythology P on Facebook, just Irish mythology podcast on Instagram at Irish Mythology and on the World Wide Web at irishmythologypodcast.ie and if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another platform that includes ratings and you like the show do us a favour and give us a five star rating it helps us reach a wider audience so slán live and see us next time so live we'll see you again and in the meantime if you happen to see anything peculiar in the sky keep the head down don't look directly at it because you never know what that might be and see you next time on irish mythology podcast you have been listening to the irish mythology podcast written presented and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Hearney. Theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an attribution license.